Okay, so we come now again to um, Matthew 4. I knew we would go slowly through this to some degree. So last week we took the opportunity to have a bit of an overview, um, look at the passage, how it fitted into the context of chapter 3. If you weren't here last week, the main takeaways are that with Jesus' baptism... Having been declared to be the beloved son in whom the father is well pleased, we now get to see that truth acted out in reality. One of the the key parallels in this passage that we've already seen in the gospel of Matthew going back to chapter 2 is that Jesus is the son. Chapter 1 even, he's the son of David, son of Abraham. He is the son and and also in chapter 2 as I was saying Israel was the son as well and there is this parallel, this comparison between Jesus and Israel as the sons of God and nowhere is this clearer thus far than here in chapter 4 where the beloved son in whom the father is well pleased is going to show why the father is well pleased in him and how he contrasts with the disobedient uh, Israel of the past. We saw that Jesus in being baptized said it was uh, in this way it's, fi- it's fitting for us, verse 15, to fulfill all righteousness and the righteousness of the Son is clearly seen here in Matthew chapter 4. The issue here is him again and again placing his faith and his trust in the Father. And we have here in chapter 4 a real declaration of the glory of Christ. We, we, we look at the glory of Christ in different ways. There's the glory of the cross, there's the glory in the resurrection, the ascension, there's the glory on the Mount of Transfiguration that we'll have later in this. But theologians have referred to something which they call Christ's moral glory as he is obedient to the Father in the most difficult of circumstances, we uh, we see him being glorified in that. And there's a lesson there that we will pick up on again a little bit later. So as we come into chapter 4, we dealt with the intro last time. Again, just by way of summary, there's a few key things I want to pick up on. He was led by the Spirit. This is... This is clearly um, and very uh, plainly said to us that this is God's will that he will go there. And it is all about the will of God. We cannot understand this passage apart from this, this introduction, that this is God's will for him that he will go into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He's going to go in to be tempted by the devil. And... We, I know we're not too bad at this, but I know also how easy it is for the false doctrines elsewhere within Christendom to sort of waft across us and for us to, to pick up some of the residue. So let me say it again clearly, that when we are seeking God's will, we must always be careful that we are not always simply seeking what is for our immediate comfort and our perceived best. 
And certainly I know that in the early years of my Christian faith as a, as a young lad, that 90% of my prayers revolved around me getting things, life being better, life being easier. God, please give me this. God, please make this happen. God, please take that away. God, please make this easier. As if somehow I was the center of the universe and God revolved around me. And that's the danger. And we have to have it very clearly in our minds that sometimes it's God's will that we would be led by him to go into a place of wilderness and be tested. And if we, in our understanding of God's will and purpose for our life, cannot fathom that, if that is outside of our understanding, then we need a new understanding because our current one is not biblical. And this is going to be a point that we'll come back to again and again, not just this week, but in the coming weeks. So he goes into the wilderness specifically to be tempted or tested. The Greek word can be translated either way. I I do wonder if, I know we're very familiar with the concept of the temptation of Christ, but um, I wonder if testing is perhaps a better expression. Uh, translation here. But nonetheless, he, he goes in and he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, and then he then became hungry. We spoke about this last time, but for those of you who weren't here, uh, when you fast, and I know most people don't have this experience and therefore they don't know, but the bizarre thing is, is that when you fast, after a few days, you are no longer hungry. Hunger ceases. You still want food. You're still tempted by food, but you're not like hungry in the way that you would be if I kept preaching for four hours and you missed your lunch. Then you would have an immediate feeling of hunger. That kind of hunger goes away. But what then what happens is, is that the body gets accustomed to what uh, doctors call autophagy, the eating of oneself, um, eating up unnecessary um parts of your body, predominantly fat and muscle, that when you get to the point when you are now starting to uh, uh, embark upon eating the parts of your body that you do, you cannot go without. You know, it's all well and good eating up a little bit of your excess muffin top or eating up a little bit of your hamstring or those biceps you've been building, but that they can go and life will go on. But once you start eating your liver, kidney, spleen, and so on and so forth, that we have a problem. And God has designed our body that when we hit that point, boom, that hunger gets switched on and it gets turned up all the way to 11. It just becomes a very loud, I am hungry. And I have to eat now. That's the point that Jesus was at. So if you like to picture these things in your mind's eye, then what we have here is not Jesus wandering around going, man, I'm really hungry. What we have is somebody looking more like the Auschwitz victims from the history books who is got no fat on him, who has barely any muscle, who looks like a human skeleton, and who is now at the point where the craving to eat is absolutely insatiable. And it will be consuming his thoughts, his heart, his mind, and what have you. That's the reality of his physical situation. And so now we come to verse 3. And in this situation, the tempter comes to him. The one who is going to test him, the one who will come, and he comes and he says, and we know who this is. Verse 1 has told us it's the devil. It's not like it's a a, a mystery as to who he is, but rather... um, It is emphasizing the role that he plays here. And he comes to play a particular role in the life of Christ. 
You know that Satan comes into the life of Christ at several times. We spoke about this a little bit last time. He comes into the life of Christ uh, when he is a, a toddler in uh, through the actions of Herod in trying to kill off all the young children. That clearly is a satanic act that Satan is involved in. The book of Revelation certainly makes that clear if it wasn't already. And then we have him here. And then as we referenced last time, there is uh, the, the, the time that he tries to work through Peter. How direct that is, we'll talk about when we get to chapter 16. And also there is his work through the person of Judas. But I don't think that we see that Satan is constantly, personally, on hand every moment of Christ's life. And I sometimes, you know, in certain churches, they're like, oh, Satan's been on my back today. Oh, most of us will never have Satan personally deal with us at any given point, because quite frankly, we're not that important. And I say that to remind us, as I said last time, that Satan is as much a created being as you are. He is not just the dark side of God. We are not in Star Wars here. There is not like a light side and a dark side of the force. There's no yin and yang balancing each other out. There is the creator and there is his creation. And Satan can be in one place at one time. And quite frankly, most of us aren't worth the trouble. That isn't to say that his his uh, demons and uh, and what have you don't influence us, mostly indirectly, but sometimes directly. But I think that we need to see the uniqueness of this situation in which Satan physically manifests himself. How many of you consider that, by the way, in this passage? He seems to physically manifest himself and appears to, to Christ to test him and to tempt him. And for those of you who are, like me, a visual person, how do I view him here? I view him here as the serpent of Genesis 3.16, 15 rather. I see him as the serpent of the fall. I see him as the seraphim-type angelic being of the um, of Isaiah 6, where you have the seraphim, two with a... Two wings, they cover their face. Two, they cover their feet. And two, they fly. He, he is an angelic being. And I think that when he takes this physical appearance, I see no reason <clears throat> that it should be anything different than that. Now, this, what he says to him is this. This is where it gets, we have to be quite precise. If you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now the word if here is a curious one, because in English if I say, now if, there is, there is a question here. Well you may, you may be, you may not be. In, in the Greek, the way that this is worded is such that we should um, be open to it being translated since. That doesn't mean necessarily that Satan is convinced that Jesus is the Son of God, since you are the Son of God. But rather, it is saying that he is presuming that to be the case for the purpose of the argument. So we could translate this as, since you are the son of God, because you are, you are clearly declaring yourself to be the son of God. Now there are questions as we read our Bibles 
that the author is trying to answer for us. And then if you're like me, there are questions that we have that the author doesn't really try to answer and is not really on his mind. And I find that frustrating because I want all my answers. Um, and I know many of you are the same way. And one question that has bugged me throughout my preparation as I look at this passage is how much does Satan know and what does he believe? And it's actually quite a crucial question for our understanding of this entire passage. When we come to the final temptation, most commentators will talk about how the temptation for Jesus was that he would get all of the kingdoms of the earth under his authority, but bypassing the cross. And while it's certainly uh, true that Jesus would have understood the need for the cross, and he would have understood that that temptation was a bypassing of the cross, um, I'm not convinced that Satan knew that. Because if Satan knew that the cross was going to be his downfall, he would not have possessed Judas to betray Jesus to send him to the cross. And in fact, Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians and some of the um, the shielding, as it were, of this information. So Christ certainly knew he was going to go to the cross and that that would be God's will and that that would be his ultimate victory. But I don't think that Satan knew that. So the question here in this particular point, and this first temptation, and also in the second one, is that when Satan says, if you are the Son of God, or since you are the Son of God, is he presuming it for the sake of argument, or does he not know for sure? And that's an intriguing question. And we can come to different opinions on that, and we can disagree, because Matthew certainly isn't giving us the answer. But it is an interesting thing nonetheless. Does Satan know that Jesus is the Son of God? Let me give you my answer for what it's worth. I'm not convinced he does at the beginning of this passage. I'm convinced he does at the end of this passage. I think that Jesus is going to unequivocally show himself to be the Son of God, the Beloved Son. As I said before, what the Father states is going to be proven. If Satan did have any doubts, and it's not clear that he did, but if he did, then it will become clear at the end of this. So the temptation then is, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. We've spoken about the state of hunger that Jesus is in, the state of weakness that he's in, and how essential it is that um, that he he know that he must eat very very soon. Um, once in my life, I tried to get to the point where I would know what that would experience like, and I I had uh, problems with electrolytes, and I probably was about a week or two away, and I didn't quite get there. But um, imagine the hungriest you've ever 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 been, and multiply it by about a hundred. I've done a lot of reading on this from uh, secular doctors who've done a lot of work with fasting as a means of medical healing. And uh, they will talk about people getting to this state. And uh, it, it's just a, like a, a, a super enhanced form of hunger. Jesus knows he has to eat, and he has to eat super quickly. And that is the context in which the the temptation comes, the testing comes. Why don't you just turn these stones into bread? 
Now the response of Jesus here is going to give us greater understanding of the nature of the temptation. And he answers and says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now I don't know about you, but when I first came across this, when I first um, was reading this, I remember doing this actually with um, at school. Um, I think, as I recall, it was maybe about a year or two before I was saved. The teacher at school who led me to Christ was the one teaching a, a religious studies class at school, and we went through these temptations. It did seem a little strange to me, I remember, going through this as sort of 10 years of age or something, 11 years of age, um, that, you know... I'm no expert on physiology, but I think you do need to be something other than just read your Bible every day. And Jesus is in a position, physiologically speaking, while that's really, while that's really clear. So what is being meant by this, this, uh, response of Jesus? Well, if you're reading from the, um, uh, from a pew Bible and you have the, the legacy in front of you, you'll notice it's in capital letters. Other Bible versions and translations will use capitals. Sometimes they'll use italics, but they'll maybe have something there to indicate to you that this is a quotation from the Old Testament. And regulars at this point will know exactly what we're about to do. We are going to turn to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8. As we do this, I want you to be very, very clear on this, just as you're turning there. Deuteronomy 8, again, if you're in a pew Bible, is 255, page number. This is, this is not a, a mere religious uh, tradition that we are developing at this church, whereby, ah, yeah, one of the things we do at our church is we turn to the Old Testament when the New Testament quotes it. Why do you do that? I don't know, it's just one of our traditions, you know. No, 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 it's far more than that. Um, one of the frustrations uh, to me in reading through commentaries uh, on this passage is how few of them spend any significant time in the Old Testament passages being quoted. This is a golden rule. I want you all, to, no matter how young you are in your faith, I want you all to remember this and to take this away with you. When the Old Testament is quoted by the New... You need to understand the context that that quotation is found in. Beyond even the context of the, of the verse quoted or the verses quoted, you need to know that the author of the New Testament is pointing us. He's pointing us to the passage as a whole. So we need to know and understand the passage. And so it uh, behooves me, as they say, to look at Deuteronomy 8. So let's read from the beginning of the chapter. The entire commandment that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do. Uh, and that commandment, by the way, is really very much in the context of Deuteronomy 6 and 7. And we'll be spending a lot of time in that in the coming weeks. Um, but... Uh, You need to be careful that you do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which Yahweh swore to give 
to your fathers. Now as we come to verse 1, we have a real context here. This is a principle that is taught throughout the Old Testament. It's, it's very specific to Israel, to the law of Moses. And it is this, if you obey what Moses has commanded you, what God has commanded you through Moses, if you obey this, then you are going to be blessed. You are going to live, you're going to multiply, have a good life, you multiply and you'll possess the land. The possession of the land and the blessings of God were dependent on their obedience. That is the central theme of the entire book of Deuteronomy and you could argue pretty much the whole Pentateuch. It's a very, very important point. There are, of course, um, as George pointed out for us just before Christmas, there are parallels to us. There are consequences for us as believers if we disobey. If we don't obey God, we cannot expect to have the full, uh, to, to experience the full blessings that God would have for us. That said, Ephesians 1 is very, very, very clear that we have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That under the old covenant, the general principle is if you obey, you will be blessed, whereas under the new covenant, the general principle is you have been blessed, so you can obey. So there are parallels and there are some that aren't, but the contextually what's going on here in the book of Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, the summation of the law, the law in its covenant form, that what is happening here is that Israel are being reminded that they are going to have to be obedient. Here they are on the brink of the land. Moses in chapter 3 has had a glimpse of the land that he will never go into. He has looked out across the land. There is this, this period now that they've had of 40 years in the wilderness. And they're about to go in and they are being reminded again, you need to obey the laws you've been given. Verse 2, you shall remember all the way which Yahweh your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now this is important. This verse is important. It's not the verse that Jesus quotes, but it's important for us to understand the verse that Jesus quotes. The Israelites have been tested for 40 years. And as we said last time, you're supposed to get the parallel between the 40 years in the wilderness and the 40 days and nights uh, in the wilderness for Christ. They've been in the wilderness for 40 years and Yahweh has led them that way through that period of time, the lessons that they've learnt that he might humble you, testing you, To know what was in your heart. This is crucial context. Why is Jesus being tested in the wilderness? Because just as the Israel, the son of God, was tested that we might see what was in their hearts. So now this son, the perfect son, the beloved son, is being tested so that we might know what is in his heart. This is the whole point. And by the way, the word no is going to become quite crucial in this understanding. But there is this humbling that God was doing of Israel to see, notice the last part of the verse, whether you would keep his commandments or not. The laws they had to keep were given to them very early on in their wilderness wanderings. 
They had the opportunity, having been given the law, to go into the land and to take the land. And so the spies were sent out and they came back. And you'll know the story. We've referenced it many times. It's so central to the, the Old and the New Testament in many ways. It's central to the argument of the book of Hebrews that we taught a few years ago. That they sent the spies in and they come back with the story and they say they are like giants, we are like grasshoppers. I think those things were factually true uh, for the most part. And they come back and they say, we can't take this land. We're going to get destroyed. That is the response of ten of the spies. Joshua and Caleb come back full of faith and say, well, that report is true, but we can take this land. And there is this double disobedience that happens at that time. Initially, they refuse to go in. They won't take the land. And God, therefore, condemns them to a generation in the wilderness. And then having received that condemnation, having received that judgment, they say, no, 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 we'll go into the land. Change their minds. We'll go into the land. But the judgment of God is irrevocable. And when they do go into the land the next day, they are utterly destroyed. And that irrevocable judgment of God there at the place uh, that it occurred, is called Kadesh Barnea, there at that place, that is going to be crucial to our understanding of Matthew's gospel. We're going to talk about that a lot in chapter 12. But for now, know this, God makes his judgment, it's irrevocable, the people then disobey again, and then they're destroyed, and then there is all this time in the wilderness, where again and again and again they're humbled, and they're shown the state of their hearts. Let me just make a really obvious application. Sometimes the applications are so obvious that I feel like, you've got what I'm saying, I don't need to say it. But you know, it doesn't hurt to be clear. So let me just make a really obvious application. We've already seen, I've already said that God desired for Christ to go into the wilderness to be tested. We in our Christian lives are seeking to follow Jesus. And so in following him, we will at some point, at some time, often for very large periods of times, be led into our own wildernesses. This is God's will for your life, for his glory, and your good. And he does that so that the reality of our hearts would be shown. I remember many years ago in England, I preached a short topical series at the church I was pastoring on the sovereignty of God. It was a good series. I remember preaching at the time. It doesn't often happen that I think this, but I was thinking, man, this is good. I like this. This is good. This is good truth that I'm preaching here. And the last of those three was a teaching on the sovereignty of God in the midst of suffering. And I did confess as I preached that sermon that day, I feel I don't feel qualified really to teach this because I don't really feel that I've suffered that much in my life. I had no idea what was about to happen. Within a few months, God brought me into a period of suffering that I wouldn't wish on the worst of my enemies. And what did I learn 
in that wilderness. I learned this. Theologically, I understood that God was sovereign. Those sermons were solid. But in my heart, I wasn't convinced it was true. Now you asked me when I preached those sermons, Anthony, do you believe that what you've said is true? I say, absolutely I believe it's true. And I wouldn't have been lying in any way, shape or form. But it was only when everything that I hoped for was taken away, everything I'd worked for was taken away, everything that I loved was taken away, everything I cherished was taken away, that suddenly the question becomes, do you still believe that I am sovereign? And then the next bit, and this was the harder bit, and that I'm good. Because it's the inability to reconcile those two things that is so troublesome for us in our humanity. This is the path that Christ is walking. The sovereignty and the goodness of God. What happens? What happens when we cannot, in our immediate circumstances, reconcile those two things? And so, the question is, When Israel goes into the wilderness, is what is it going to look like in their hearts? And we, who have even the vaguest understanding of Old Testament history, know that their hearts were not particularly good. That the response was not a faithful response, and their hearts were revealed to be wicked, idolatrous, evil, and uh, a whole bunch of other words, one of which we'll come to shortly. So then we come to verse 3, and we come to the verse in which we find the quotation that Christ gives us in Matthew. He says, he humbled you, and he let you be hungry. Can we just, can we just pause at that clause? He humbled you, and he let you be hungry. This is what it looks like practically, guys. When you go through trials, God lets you be hungry. And yes, sometimes that's physical hunger, and yes, hunger here is representative, and yes, in a sense, it's literal, because it's speaking of of Exodus 16, which George read for us, which we're coming to in a moment, but it speaks to us, of course, of uh, literally in the wilderness, but, but in a sense of God is going to let you go without, to the point at which the desire for you to no longer be in this situation is absolutely overwhelming. You see, that's why I emphasize this point about the physiology of fasting. It's not just to let you know that I know about the physiology of fasting, though it's kind of cool because most commentaries don't. But nonetheless, it's really an important point because what is being said here is, is that Jesus got to the point where his body turned on signals that just screamed, you have to eat now because if this goes on, you're going to die. Now, we may never know that experience. I certainly don't recommend it. But but what I would say is this, is that many of us understand that getting to a point of suffering where not having what we desire becomes so overwhelming that it consumes us. You pray for your children to have their eyes open to the glories of the gospel. You raise them in the, the scriptures. You sit them on their, your laps and you read them from the Bible. 
You teach them to memorize Bible verses and to familiarize them with Bible stories. You speak to them of the character of God. You fill their hearts and minds with the gospel again and again and again and again and again. And they don't follow him. And you cry out for their souls again and again and again and again and again. And the pain can be so great that it can overwhelm you. And you can replace that with a marriage with health issues, with financial troubles, with anything else. But you know what I'm talking about, don't you? The point where that hunger gets turned up to 11. Where you're just like, God, I can't do this anymore. When you find yourself in that situation, might I suggest to you that this clause is actually an astonishingly powerful portion of scripture he humbled you and he let you be hungry because the victory in testing is recognizing and declaring and proclaiming and believing and trusting that in the midst of it all he is sovereign and he is good and the beginning of that is to recognize that he's sovereign he let us in And he let us be hungry. He let Israel be hungry. He let Jesus be hungry. This is crucial context. Because nothing in chapter 4 in the first temptation makes sense aside from this context. He humbled you and let you be hungry. And he fed you. And finally when they were hungry he fed them. And he fed them with manna. Which you did not know... Nor did your fathers know that he might make you know. You see what I'm doing here? You could be really funny and you could say, no. (laughs) But yeah. Three times that word is repeated. Four if you include the previous verse. That you may know that man does not live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh. I knew that God was sovereign when I preached those sermons. But I didn't know that God was sovereign experientially. That's the kind of knowing that is being spoken of here. We need to know your hearts. We need to know. You need you to see what you really believe when the rubber hits the road, when, 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 uh, when you're in the wilderness, then we really get to see what we know. And what it is, is that there would be a knowing. And he, specifically in this context, there is a reference to the feeding of the Israelites with manna. This, my friends, is as much intertextuality as Deuteronomy 8 being quoted in Matthew 4. Here in Deuteronomy 8, we have an allusion to Exodus 16. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to go to Exodus 16. Because if he's referencing the passage about manna... In the wilderness, if that needs to be understood to understand the context of Deuteronomy 8, and if we need to understand the context of Deuteronomy 8 to understand Matthew 4, then we're going to have to go back to Exodus 16. So that's what we're going to do. For the second time today, we're in Exodus 16. Again, if you're in your pew Bibles, it's on page 97. And George read it for us earlier on mass, so we won't uh, go through it all again in its entirety. What I do want you to note, though, is some of the key segments here. That they've gone out in verse 1, 
They set out from Elim, the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. And on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Can you see the parallel between this and Matthew 4? They've gone from a place where God was, because that's it, they've come from following uh, God dealing with them. He's provided water, the striking of the rock and all of that. And, and here we are, where have we come from in Matthew 4? We've come from God's presence at water. And then we're going out, away, into the wilderness. Where are they going here? Out into the wilderness. And then what happens is after a period of time, that they then become hungry. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Notice in verse 2, the word grumbled. Notice then as you come to verse uh, 7, there's grumblings and grumble. Then in verse 8, we have grumblings and grumblings. And then as we go down to verse uh, 12, we have grumblings again. There's a lot of grumblings. And again, you haven't got to be a Christian for 50 years to work out that repetition is making a point as you read your Bible. The Israelites are grumbling. How do we define this grumbling? Well, it's given to us in verse 3. Sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt, but we sat by the pots of meat when we ate bread to the full, for you had brought us into the wilderness to put this whole assembly to death with hunger. I need to spend some time on this. There is a very important distinction between grumbling and lamenting. I am concerned that in our circles of Bible teaching churches, that often any acknowledgement of our pain and our suffering is, is rebuked as grumbling. That is not the case. In fact... I have argued multiple times that for lament to be true biblical lament, that it must involve an acknowledging of the extent of our suffering and pain for it to be true biblical lament. And in fact, you can go to certain parts of the Bible and the lament and the acknowledgement of the pain is so profound, so deep, so great that we really get wriggly and uncomfortable with it. And you read commentaries and the commentators are uncomfortable with it. And you hear sermons on the passages and the pastors are uncomfortable with it. Because there is in our hearts and in our minds, I think, an association with, ooh, this sounds a bit grumbly to me. And we don't want to be the Israelites in Exodus 16. We don't want to be the ones being rebuked for grumbling. So it's very important that we have this distinction. Regulars will know, I've said this many times, I believe that lament is summarized by an ABC. An acknowledging of the realities of our pain and our suffering and how that makes us feel. Hence, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Had God forsaken him? No. Did he feel like he had? Yes. Does he get to express that? Absolutely he does. But for lament to be lament, it cannot stop at the A, or otherwise it may end up falling into grumbling. 
There has to be the B and the C. <clears throat> B is beholding God. But I remember who you are. Even in Psalm 88, the most dark and miserable of all the lament psalms, he says, you are Yahweh of my salvation. My state is just miserable and beyond compare, but I know that you are the one who is able to save. Remembering who God is and crying out to him. That's the C. When you have suffering and pain, you get to be able to say to God, God, this is horrific. In the context here, I'm just so hungry. But you must remember who he is and cry out to him. Let's see what we see in verse 3 of chapter 16. Sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hands of Yahweh in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you brought us out in this wilderness to put this whole assembly to death with hunger. Do you see them crying out to God for help? No, you just see them grumbling. Grumbling by definition is a focusing on the situation without crying out to the one who can resolve that situation. Grumbling is not beholding the character of God. Now I'll give them, I'll give them some credit. There's one aspect of God's character they do get right here. His sovereignty. They are under no illusion that God is real, that God brought them out of Egypt, that God brought them into the wilderness, and that God was sovereign over that whole purpose. They get that, they accept that. But they struggle with his goodness. You brought us here to kill us. I know for me, that was a struggle that took years of God just beating me and beating me and beating me. Until I got on my knees and said, you are sovereign and you are good. And do you know what it was that made the difference for me? I had my theology just challenged, shattered. I used to be so sure about this, but now I don't know. My whole faith was falling apart. And I watched an old man near the end of his life speaking and meditating on the work of Christ on the cross and how he who knew no sin became sin for our sakes that we might become the righteousness of God. How he suffered in my place, punished in my stead for my sins. And in the midst of all my confusion and my despair and my crumbling faith, I said in my heart, that... That I still believe. He was sovereign and he was good. And there is in the congregation of Israel this grumbling. Because they're saying life was better before. Never fall into that trap. If you are a Christian and you are being tested and tempted... The enemy is going to make things appeal to you in ways that makes them shiny and bright and delightful. And of course, reference to my previous point, I use the term the enemy in a very broad and specific way. Uh, broad and non-specific, general way. 
But everything will seem appealing. The sins of the world, the desires of our hearts, all of these things can seem like they might well be the answer to all of our problems. Or at least just make us feel better for a short while. And the reality is that God has allowed us to go without to find out where we find our satisfaction. But nothing was better, friends. You might have enjoyed at the time going out, living like the world, enjoying the pleasures of the world. But you were dead in your sins and your trespasses. You were, you were one incident away from no longer breathing and being in the presence of God and being rightly judged and condemned for all eternity for all of your sins. You did not know the love of Christ. You did not care for the love of Christ. You didn't take pleasure in Him. You didn't treasure Him. You didn't embrace Him. You didn't know Him. You had no idea of what love really was. And he takes you away from the slavery of sin, gives you his Holy Spirit as he opens your eyes to the glories of the gospel and you think that in any way, shape or form your life was somehow better because you got to do sins you don't get to do anymore. Man, you've got to be messed up in the head to think that way. Or just very, very hungry. And so it is... That all of this is pointing us to the fact that as we go into the wilderness and we go without the food that we, that we need, is even things that are essential for our, for our life are taken away from us. Even things that are inherently not wrong, things that are good are taken away from us. Then we get to see our faith. And what was found in the hearts of Israel was a heart of grumbling, a heart of not trusting. And even when, and I won't go through it in detail, but even when the manna from heaven comes and they're told they can gather some, they end up gathering more. Why? Because they don't trust that it's coming again the next day. God says, every day it's going to come, you go and collect, and what do they do? Well, we collect some extra, just in case. Those three words are the death of your walk, brothers and sisters. Just in case case for us to mature in our faith there can be no safety net there can be no harness there can be no plan B there can be no just in case there is Yahweh there is Christ and there is nothing else And so as we go back to Deuteronomy 8, when Jesus talks about that incident with the manna, the you did not know, your fathers did not know. But why is it that that whole thing happened? Why the testing? Why the tempting? Why the revealing of the heart? Why the making hungry? Why the manna incident? Why all of that? So that you would know that man does not live by bread alone. 
Now, in its essence, if you, if you isolate that phrase from its context in Deuteronomy 8, then of course it makes no sense. In one sense, that statement out of context can be shown to be false. Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do an experiment here. I'm gonna take ten people, put them in a room. Five of them I'm gonna give unlimited bread to. And the other five will have nothing to eat for 400 days, but I'll give them a Bible. There's obviously a sense in which this can be shown to be false. But in the context, what is it saying? It's saying that this was done so that you may know that you cannot live by bread alone. The point here is this. You cannot trust in the physical things of this world, you cannot trust in your own ability. You cannot trust in your circumstances. There is only one thing, one person you can place your trust in, and that is God. There are no what-ifs, there are no just-in-cases, there are no second thoughts, second guesses, looking over your shoulders. There is, God has led me here, and I will trust in Him. But, 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 but what if this? But, 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 but what if that? But what if I will trust in Him? And so it is. Is it on the one hand, is taking rocks and stones and turning them into bread, is that somehow sinful and forbidden in Scripture? In and of itself, no. But Jesus knows He's been led into the wilderness. He knows he's been led into the wilderness for God to reveal what is in his heart. And that needs to be seen and need to be shown. And the enemy, and this, by the way, is something that is gloriously repeated in Scripture so many times. The enemy, in trying to put in the final blow, actually ends up serving God. Because in asking this question, he gives the opportunity for the heart of Christ to be revealed to all. For the statement of God, the Father, at the baptism to be validated. He gives the opportunity for it to be shown that this is the beloved Son. And in the midst of this extreme, intense hunger, there is no grumbling. There is no complaining. There is no second-guessing the character of the Father. There is no wishing things were different. There is a waiting and a trusting in God. One of the hardest things for us to do, believers, is to wait on Yahweh. Psalm 37 says, do not fret, do not fret, do not fret, three times. Wait on God. Do not fret. One of the hardest challenges in my sanctification has been to resist the desire to do things, to make things happen, to fix things, to to actively get involved where sometimes you just have to go, okay, you've got this God. And I've become convinced over the years that sometimes many of us in our character we better we'd be better off if in doubt just getting our hands off and just praying and letting God do things in his own time. Of course, there's others of you that have a tendency to do nothing, in which case taking your hands off is going to lead you into sin. But I know for me personally, sometimes, man, I've just got to be told, it's not for you to do this. 
hate the way my wife nods at me in sermons sometimes when she knows exactly the matter that God is convicting upon my heart as I speak. I don't know what God's convicting you of in your hearts right now, but I pray he is. That we would be a people who would trust in God. And so as we move on a little bit in Deuteronomy, just briefly as we finish... Your clothing did not wear out on you. Your foot did not swell these 40 years. Thus shall you know in your heart that Yahweh your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. You see, was the manna a feast? Was the manna a good British roast beef with Yorkshire puddings and roast potatoes? No, it wasn't. Was it a good Thanksgiving meal with your turkey and all those various sides that you put with turkey for reasons that will always escape me? No, it wasn't. It was pretty bland. Although I fear by using that word, I'm quoting VeggieTales rather than the Bible. But nonetheless, it was, a, it was a fairly bland meal. It wasn't a feast. It wasn't delighting to the senses in that way. And so when you are going without something that you want, when you are struggling, when you're in the wilderness, when you are hungry, you should have your eyes on other things like mm, maybe clothing miraculously not wearing out for 40 years. I'm not sure many of us have clothes in our wardrobe that we had 40 years ago. And if we do, we certainly haven't worn them regularly. But we've always got our eyes on that itch rather than on the things that God's blessing us with. And so there is evidence that God had not deserted them. There's evidence that God is protecting them. But their hearts gave them away by having their eyes on the wrong things. And there is the disciplining as a man disciplines his son. If you think of the word discipline as only meaning punishment, you're going to misunderstand multiple New Testament passages concerning Christ. God disciplined Christ, trained him, tested him. Through the work of Satan, who was trying to harm him, God was going to use it for his greater glory. In that, we have a model for what we're building up to at the end of Matthew, of course, with the cross. And so the commandment to Israel in verse 6, as we come out of that, thus you shall know, uh, sorry, thus you shall keep the commandments of Yahweh your God and to walk in his ways and to fear him. And so as we conclude today and as we come back to Matthew, what have we learned? That Christ is the perfect son. That he succeeded where Israel failed. If you or I had been in the wilderness, man, we wouldn't even got to 40 days. If we'd had the powers of turning stones and rocks into bread, we'd have... We'd have had uh, boulders of bread on day one, quite likely. Christ did what Israel couldn't and what we couldn't. He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled all righteousness. And what can we learn from our, for ourselves from this in a way, by way of application? What we need to learn is this, that Christ was the obedient son. He obeyed. That's why Deuteronomy 8 in the five verses reminds them of what happened in the wilderness and then in verse 6 says, so you go and obey. 
We've spent time looking at the events in the wilderness. We've looked at the failings and we've looked at the one who succeeds. And his spirit indwells us so that we might obey as well. And sometimes that obedience means not doing things that are sinful. And sometimes it means doing things that we must do to be obedient. Reading our Bible, coming to church, praying, loving one another, basic stuff. And sometimes, often, it just means in difficult times, just being firm, being tough with ourselves, and in the midst of the hunger, saying, he is sovereign, and he is good, and I will trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It's my prayer today that we would be found to be faithful when tested. And when our hearts are shown to have failed, may we repent and may we rise up. And in all things, may we trust you. For you are both sovereign and ever so, always good. Amen. Thank you.